When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Stephen. Alva's out reporting. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the House of Commons debate about Afghanistan and you ask us more questions about the crisis. So the House of Commons was recalled today to uh, discuss the situation in Afghanistan, which was literally the name of the the motion, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the House has considered the situation in Afghanistan, which is, you know, for those of our listeners who who aren't Commons procedure experts, or hello, and for those of you who are, I apologise in advance for all of the mistakes I'm about to make. (laughs) The government sets the wording of the motion, and a neutral motion can't be amended, which means that you don't have to have, you know, a vote on it at the end, you avoid any kind of difficulties within your own party and obviously there are there are lots of things which you can imagine an amended motion could have obviously the government would have won the vote because they have a huge majority but there were lots of things which would have exposed the various sores within the conservatives over this issue and then yeah basically that means mps discuss it it kind of ranges across the house now some people have said oh well that shows it was pointless actually while the level of openness to refugees with playing is is actually you know not as large as I would like, fairly derisory, and I think also involves a bunch of quite a lot of magical thinking, both about our capacity to rescue people, but also about the Home Office's willingness to actually in practice. You know, it's one thing saying, yeah, we're going to prioritise women and girls, religious minorities, and sexual minorities, except, of course, we know that the Home Office has a long history of being like, don't seem that camp, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not LGBT. Back to the country you go. But the only reason why that 5,000 commitment has happened is because of a need to see off critics within the, within, particularly on the conservative backbenches, because obviously because the majority is so big and no one really cares about the opposition parties. But yeah, it was neutral motion, discussed, you know, Boris did his bit, Keir Starmer did his bit, Theresa May did her bit. Yeah, I think the, the speech was probably getting the, the best reviews is uh, Tom Tugendhat's. But, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was the, the week that was. And you were actually in the chamber and the House of Commons was fuller than we've seen it in recent months. What was the atmosphere like and sort of whose benefit did it play to? Well, it was weird because it was very surreal because obviously it was a very sombre occasion. I was thinking about, yeah, the the first time I ever went into the House of Commons for work, it turned out, was when the House of Commons was recalled for the Syria vote, where it was full, similarly very serious, but also, crucially, a very sombre atmosphere. Whereas it was serious, very sombre, particularly once the debate had started. But I think there was also this weird sort of electricity in the air if you could tell people were just like, oh, my God, 
there are people, people all around me, people sitting beside me. I think it's really interesting how if you look at the polls, and indeed, if you think, if you talk about you know, people in your own social group, right, there is not a partisan divide in the real world about wearing masks, scepticism towards lockdown, right? You, I think we've all got one friend who is very sceptical about lockdown, or some people, I guess, probably are the one friend who's very sceptical about lockdown. But actually, not, those people don't have anything in common politically. Some of them might be leaving, some of them, except in Parliament, you look across and you're just like, oh, so now you really can see where, like, the Lib Dems end and the DUP begin, because it's like, mask, 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 no mask, no mask, no mask, no mask, <laughs> Caroline Lucas in a mask, 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 mask. And then you have kind of, well, actually... As one Tory whip texted me, they said they said they said you spot the people who have quite small majorities who are just like my constituents are going to expect me to wear a mask, <laughs> and I don't care, and it means I'm the only person on this <laughs> row of Tory MPs wearing a mask. But yeah, and you have yeah the Tory side almost completely maskless, and it's just fascinating because that very much can be solely explained by sort of party political effects within the parties, but those elite cues, as it were, don't have seem to have had no effect on public opinion mask wearing isn't polarized among people but it is polarized in in parliament uh, but yeah it was very strange being back in a full house not least because one of the things i think people probably don't appreciate about the remote commons is if you're the minister you know what the question is because there's a certain number of people if the whips are remotely competent you know they obviously phone up and go like mate what are you going to ask about so the minister has a better idea what's coming I think a lot of ministers are going to struggle with a return to the era of, oh, someone's bobbing, what's it about? Oh, I haven't answered that question properly, and now four MPs are bobbing because they've, you know, they've noticed that there's a problem here. The thing I thought was really interesting is, and I imagine we'll get into this bit in part two, is that I don't actually think that the government's case is that bad, right? The argument that this is a US-led operation, the United Kingdom does not have the logistical capability to have remained in Afghanistan once the US is just like, oh, this has been going on a long time, hasn't it? Let's go home. It's just sort of open and shut. That's before you even get to the political arguments about whether or not that would be desirable or whether or not that would be electorally doable, right? And he kind of, he nodded to the argument, you know, sort of kind of, but he made such a bad fist of just going, look, this wasn't, you know, which I thought was very interesting. So Theresa May went, yeah, look, have you spoken to the head of NATO about, you know, us continuing? And he... Weirdly, he went, oh, I've spoken to him this week, then kind of, sort of belatedly kind of went into the and actually look, here's where we couldn't do it. Now, lots of people, it's become very fashionable to go, oh, well, it doesn't matter that he can't like do speeches or make an argument because, you know, he wins. Mm -hmm. I actually think it does matter, not least because delivering a speech well, pff, kind of irrelevant. Delivering a speech which on the page or when you're reporting it and writing it down, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I think you can draw a direct line between like the incoherence of his speech and the fact that this is an opinion I've stolen from a Conservative MP. I'm going to attribute it to a Conservative MP because I remember this MP listens to the podcast, which is they said you can tell an organisation is in trouble the number of times that you ask it a question and two things are opposed and the answer to both is yes. It's like, you know, like does the government think that we are better off outside the EU, but the EU should stay and thrive? Or does it think that we are the first domino to fall? And depending on the minister you ask or the day of the week, government policy is based on the idea that the answer to both these questions is yes. Does the government think that China are an essential part of the global system now and you just have to live with it? Or do they think China is a serious threat and need to be combated? Well, the answer is yes, depending on the day of the week. Then you get into all sorts of, well, you know, is international aid spending part of how we project power across the world or is it something we can safely afford to cut, etc., etc.? And that, I think, 
all manifests itself in this very incoherent speech that the Prime Minister gave today. That's really interesting because I've been looking into the resettlement scheme and sort of the painful process of trying to wring that out of the Home Office. What, what they've been saying and the journey that they've been on in, in announcing this scheme, you know, first of all, refusing to um, speak about it at all, briefing these vague things about a bespoke scheme based on the Syrian resettlement scheme, but refusing to give a figure, sort of whispers about the fact that they never wanted to give a figure so that they could sort of keep the numbers under review, stay flexible in light of our COVID recovery, which is something that I heard was sort of part of the calculation and sort of whether or not local authorities, you know, have the capacity to house anyone, let alone, you know, the numbers that were being demanded by the Lib Dems who wanted 20,000, Labour wanted tens of thousands, in inverted commas. I think the SNP had been calling for more than 30,000. So eventually, you know, like you say, the Home Office was forced to, to come to some kind of number because of mainly pressure from the Conservative backbenches. But what's interesting is when you look at what that scheme would actually mean, sort of 5,000 this year, when, you know, the rest of the 15,000 don't, don't have that much time to wait, is that it really exposes actually our shortcomings in terms of our refugee responses, not only the cut to international development, but also the Nationality and Borders Bill that they're, that they're trying to bring through, which frustrates the process of people coming here to seek asylum and makes the situation for them, if they do make it here, even more miserable. And you've seen, you know, you've seen the way that other resettlement schemes have worked, the Dubs Amendment child migrant scheme that got ended in 2017 after taking in 350 when we know that there's about 90,000 of those child migrants across Europe and the end of the family reunification as well that sort of ended with the Brexit transition period in January. We know that the government has so many shortcomings in terms of the way that it, it treats refugees and the way that it executes these these resettlement schemes and that was just so clear in the pe very painful process of trying to get an answer from the Home Office on these things. I think that really chimes with what you were saying about that hypocrisy and the... It is, it is, I mean, I hate quoting Dominic Cummings, but it is that sort of trolley veering from left to right, whatever day of the week it is. And I thought you saw a lot of that in the government's response this week in terms of the wave of refugees that we might expect from, from this crisis. The, the thing that's interesting about the resettlement scheme is the way that the 5,000 figure, as far as I can tell, has basically just been arrived at through some kind of like Price is Right style. Okay, so our backbenchers think we should be taking more. The opposition party is saying we should take more. Civil society and all of the like, you know, major religious leaders are saying we should be taking more. 5,000? 5, 5,000 this year? Is that do you? That, 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 that okay? And yes, yeah. Have you, have you been able to find sort of any policy argument for it beyond that's a reassuring sounding number? No, no, I haven't. Speaking of this sort of inadequate response, did Keir Starmer sort of make the most of it, so to speak? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought, I just sounds a lot more grudging than I really intend it to be. Obviously, I realise I'm slightly grudging because, you know, like all political journalists are, I, like Dominic Raab, resent having my holiday ended. But <laughs> it's one of those things where actually I think you would struggle as a leader of the opposition if you to, to not land it you know he hit all of the beats pretty well you know you said then there was yeah you, know, you said six weeks ago or whatever it was and there was no prospect of a military victory for the taliban now that was happened you know you, we clearly visibly did think that we would have longer to evacuate people now that what's happened your foreign secretary like was in crete and basically had to be dragged back you're a bit rubbish he hit all of those beats 
very well as you'd kind of things one of the things where I realize I actually do struggle to imagine a leader of the opposition doing today's badly. It's kind of a bit like one of the as listener long term listeners will know about my grumbling about why my first act as politics was to get rid of like doing PMQs in a like who's won, who's lost, because it's just like you can pretty much always the person who wins and loses is about events outside of the house rather than performance. And it was very much one of that, you know, he hit uh, tick those boxes off very well. The thing I thought was really striking about it, to return to the thing about you know the house returning to people being in it, is when he was doing the kind of like you're rubbish, aren't you? The incredibly sort of like the way that kind of Tory MPs, who obviously what well, usually ought to happen in a full house, is they're like shame, shame, like you're rubbish, aren't they? And they're like, <laughs> oh, no, 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 he's not, he's not <laughs> actually, he's not not rubbish at all. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, and actually, to the Tory whip's credit, you could see they were watching in the same kind of, uh, guys, could you could you maybe be a little bit more sort of, you know, yeah, they did do, you could tell them they were texting people, basically like, we need a 12th man here. Where are you? Because they then started to intervene on him whenever he'd do it. But it was one of those things that was really, I mean, I do always quite like it when you actually get in the house to, to watch the whips doing their job in real time. You know, the kind of away from... Yeah, the really serious politics of it. The really interesting thing is, is that we did, I think, see, you know, how what politics returning to its pre-pandemic pattern in terms of how it's done looks like. And I think it was really striking just, and and Rob Hutton uh, has written a good piece in his his sketch for The Critic on this year, that it was just really striking, you know, the kind of way that you could see the sort of return of regular politics almost in terms of how it's done right down to you know leader of the opposition goes ah here's an obvious bruise time to punch it but with yeah the fascinating thing and the yeah the conservative response despite it being a full house was quite subdued until the point where you could tell them the whips were doing a very good job of going uh lads get on with it If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget to listen to our bonus podcast series, Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. You can get it in this podcast feed. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. We've had a number of questions on Afghanistan, so we're going to choose two of them. The first one is from Will. Just what do people criticising Boris Johnson for the withdrawal actually want him to do? Biden's mind was made up and we only had a tiny non-combat force left in the country after Cameron's drawdown in 2014. They can't seriously think it was plausible for the British to lead a replacement force. 
But I realised when I said we should do all of the questions, I should have thought more about the fact that one of those questions is one I was going to be like, yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm afraid I, I do find it very hard, particularly when you have MPs who have been government MPs since 2010, right? during which point the armed forces have shrunk to their lowest level since 1900, suddenly standing up and going, hey, wait a second, we can't mount our own operation in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's like, yeah, Theresa May, like, it was a very good, well-delivered speech in which she made several key sort of policy points, right, including the sort of, yeah, the question of, well, look, if you have a situation where, like, the US goes, yeah, okay, lads, we're going home, good luck, and the rest of NATO just goes, oh, okay, I guess we've got to go home too, right? Like, when Trump negotiated the withdrawal in the negotiation agreement it's like the US and its allies will leave well Boris Johnson wasn't involved in that negotiation Emmanuel Macron wasn't involved in that negotiation Scott Morrison wasn't involved in that negotiation I don't know why I thought I briefly thought I was going to list like all of the NATO countries no one wants to hear me listing the names of, <laughs> of, of you know increasingly uh, increasingly obscure heads of government she, she's right but equally it's like so um Remind me, what what were you doing for the last decade? Did you did you perhaps work in any of these conservative governments? Just just refresh my memory. Yeah, I think, and also, yeah, even if you imagine a world in which the United Kingdom, yeah, the idea of an EU army is like once again kind of reared its head. That's some which in practice, right, would essentially mean you know huge amount of Anglo-French material, tech, equipment, and money, a significant Eastern European ground presence, particularly, of course, on the European Union's eastern border, and then a fairly sizable, but, you know, insubstantial probably compared to the Anglo-French contribution from Germany. And regardless of Brexit, if we ever do have a something which we recognise as a European army, just as, you know, we will, I imagine, whether we rejoin or not, end up with something basically Europol plus, you know, EU27 plus the EA states plus, plus the UK, you know, something like Macron's Europe of circles idea. Even if you had enough Anglo-French capacity to run Afghanistan, this idea that, like, Emmanuel Macron, however many months before the French election, is going to turn around and be like, lads, lads, I think we're going to stay in for as long as it takes Maybe that's 10 years, maybe it's 20, maybe it's forever. Maybe it's as long as there have been American soldiers in South Korea or West Germany. Who's with me? You know, not only do I think that would not go well for him, he wouldn't do it because it wouldn't go well for him. Mm-hmm. Ditto, like, if Boris Johnson was just like, yeah, we've decided to fill the void. Where I think I slightly disagree with this question is that it is a bit alarming that pretty much all Western governments clearly did not see the speed of the Taliban takeover coming Boris Johnson, one of the weird bits of solidarity I always feel with him is I too make jokes in appropriate moments and I too would be a crappy prime minister. <laughs> and, you know, him kind of going in response to Tobias Hellwood going, are we going to have an inquiry into this obviously quite worrying intelligence failure? And him just being like, look, even the Taliban didn't know how successful they'd be. And it's just like, no, mate, no, you, that that's not a good response. But I think Will is right, right? Ultimately, there is an issue about, well, look, if you don't, want the United Kingdom to stay and seeing as various policy decisions mean that the United Kingdom can't stay, you either need to do the Tom Tugendhat thing and explicitly argue, well, we can't let this happen again. We need to, you know, and he didn't didn't use the phrase that is beloved of a certain type of defence wonk in Westminster. He didn't say, well, we should spend the six. I spend 6% of GDP on it. Mm-hmm. But he has basically said, look, we need to massively increase our, our military and defence capability. You either need to make that make that argument explicitly which I'm afraid I think good luck after the decades we've had good luck when you're overseeing austerity elsewhere. But, you know, maybe you can do that. Or you need to do what Boris did, but, you know, 
actually do it in a sort of you know articulate artic- articulate and without you know end of the peer humor approach of going look the die is cast and this is why we've done what we've done and also what i would add is there is there is a third response which is that as cameron knew international development spending was another way for britain to exert its influence in the world and to and to you know to flex its muscles and to suggest that it was still a global player and the fact that that cut has is has come in sort of further weakens not only Britain's place in the world and the people who benefited from from those funds, but also the Prime Minister trying to defend vacuums left in the world because of mistakes made by itself and its allies. So you could see that Boris Johnson was scrabbling for that rhetorical tool, which David Cameron often used to use in response to things like Syria, for example. He would say, well, we're spending, you know, record amount in X, Y and Z. And this is how many refugees we've, you know, pledged to to take in. And we have this scheme and that scheme. And unfortunately, the humanitarian response seems to be very, very patchy. Look at the way that they treated the interpreters. Look at the scramble for the for the resettlement scheme so far and how inadequate it is. And also look at the aid budget cut and how they can't use that rhetorically anymore. So even cynically, you know, he can't he can't use it. So I think Will's right in his question about what exactly do you want Boris Johnson to do about the impact of America pulling out its troops. But there is something Britain can do in reality, but also in rhetoric as well. And Boris Johnson had, you know, didn't have both of those things at his fingertips. And our next question for you, Ask Us, is from Robin. I was struck by polling showing that re-intervening in Afghanistan, though a minority view everywhere, is more popular among Labour and Lib Dem voters than among Tories. What is behind the isolationist attitude of conservative voters? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, there, there, yeah, it is a really interesting question. I think there's two theories here, right? Like theory one is what you might think of as the high Remainer argument, which is, you know, the conservative coalition is a Brexit coalition. The conservative coalition is, is, is all about turning away from the world and whatever the proposition, whether it's aid cuts, Brexit, Reintervening, whatever you think of, I'm obviously not saying I think when those three things, you know, those three things have quite different bases of support elsewhere. But whatever the proposition, you'll find a, a bias within the Tory coalition to out, which I think stands up and works. I, I'm sort of more tempted by the. I think that just feels to me like a f- kind of fairly standard party loyalty effect. In that, although the position of, well, actually, the position of the Lib Dems in the House today did seem a little bit to be quite close to go back in there, which uh, was a real kind of like, wow, what a decade you lads have had. <laughs> um, the Labour Green SNP position is basically like, this is sad. You should have had better intelligence. We would have done it too. Right, essentially, right? But I think all of that means that because of the criticism from all of the opposition parties kind of shades towards you shouldn't be leaving, even even though we all kind of know that they would, right? Even though that was kind of what the implication of what the Lib Dems were said in the House, we all know that you know they wouldn't actually, right? But I think that means that a chunk of that vote goes, oh, okay, I'm, I move towards the idea that we should because that's the that's the like way I'm being loyal right yeah. I think it was really striking so Keir Starmer's numbers are still uh, nowhere near where they were when they were good but the initial fall off kind of immediately rebounded the second and the line to take from the Labour Party became the Labour Party is doing badly which I suspect is because they created this weird one-off effect where if you were a party loyalist answering the thing you're you know they're thinking like oh what's the way I'm aligned with my leader oh it's to go, we're doing badly. 
and I think with a lot of it, it's like, what is the government's position? The government's position is that going back in would be crazy. Therefore, if you are a loyal conservative, right, and you kind of, I mean, one thing I, there are many things and I find annoying about other people's journalism, not least that I'm, you know, jealous and embittered. But um, one of the really annoying ticks is the people who go, oh, Twitter isn't Britain, unless like someone whose politics they disagree with has said something stupid on Twitter in which suddenly that person is representative of all conservatives, all Labour people, all Lib Dems, etc., etc. The way that Twitter is useful is, in terms of understanding how politics work, is watching people like spin on a dime on on various, you know, kind of like, you know, the line to take becomes, yeah, it's sad we're leaving, but we have to. The line to take, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the line to take was in Afghanistan was a disastrous war caused by Tony Blair and then, you know, you couldn't drop democracy from 50,000 feet, as Cameron said, and David Cameron was going to end all of that before he, you know, promptly went, actually, I quite like the idea of intervening in Libya and I would have intervened in Syria if Ed Miliband hadn't got in the way. And I think there's always an element with people kind of, yeah, in polls of, of voters answering, the, doing the loyal answer. But I think those are the two plausible theories. Is there a third? Or if not, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think you're right. When I first looked at that polling, I thought this must be because, you know, you're probably seeing your guy on television criticising their guy on television about, you know, taking troops out of Afghanistan. And therefore, you think the the right way is the way that, you know, you're the leader who, whose party you support is, is the one to put the one to tick in your polling box. It's easy to read too much into this kind of polling sometimes. But then again, you know, I do think there's probably something in the idea of conservative voters or voters in general, maybe feeling like their priorities are more isolationist at the moment. You can see America leaning that way. You can see those trends coming out of the impact of the pandemic even in the climate debate for example there's you know a vocal contingent of the conservative party that are worried about the costs of net zero on the day-to-day lives of their voters and there does seem to be that kind of not charity begins at home but sort of you know let, let's 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 protect our own before protecting others you can see it in the vaccine sort of hoarding and distribution as well so i don't know whether that's sort of a trend of the modern world and probably someone who's who's more of an expert in that kind of macro geopolitical view would know more about that but that you know i'm sure if you tracked this kind of polling you would notice a bend towards isolationism so next week Stephen and i are doing a dom rob and boris johnson and both going on holiday in a spectacular forward planning feat now i wanted alva to do like a one-hander kind of like beckett play like alva ray's last tape but apparently this wasn't a good idea so instead we've got a, a range of, of interviews coming over the next week and then when we come back uh, there'll be interviews on Monday, plus the regular All Singing, All Dancing, Bells and Smells NS podcast on its regular day. You know, we'll be interviewing you know, authors about books they have coming out, getting into some interesting ideas like effective altruism and veganism. So, you know, if you have, yeah, so yeah, this is a one-time call to action to listeners to, you know, if there's a topic and you'd like us to interview someone or someone you think is an interesting interviewee, let us know and then we can email their publicist and they can say no. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.